0: All right, let's try that again. Good morning, family. Good morning. morning. Adopted sons and daughters of the Father who delights in giving you the kingdom. Good morning. Today I am tasked to hold out for you our Savior, the Christ, by the grace of the Father and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our reading today will be from Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. If you don't have a Bible, look underneath your chair. We have lots of Bibles kind of scattered throughout. um, But that's where we'll be today. Also in Ezekiel 16, if you want to just leave your finger there or a, a, a bookmark or something. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives. This is the word of the Lord. I think it well to preface this sermon by informing us all from the start that this time is not merely for the edification of the man who either is or seeks to be a husband. It's not even solely to hearten the woman who is or who seeks to be a wife. Uh, This address is aimed also to encourage the man who may never be a husband. It's also to comfort the woman who may never be a wife. Also to ease the soul of the man who once was a husband and to minister to the hearts of the woman who once was a wife. Frankly, I think it to be nothing short of tragedy for any individual to sit under the word of God for even one Sunday, considering in their mind this week this is not for me next week is my week or or last week was my week or one week for the wives one week for the husbands next week it'll come back to me no this should be apparent from even our children's notes here which on every page printed has a section that says Jesus is with an area to fill in the blank indicating every week here at this church We are proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. We are preaching the gospel. And that means, beloved, every week here is for you. Because every week we are declaring the Savior, even if there is a special focus from time to time on certain implications like last week and today. I've anticipated this sermon actually for many months Uh, exactly for this reason, but to be absolutely clear, it's not because I think I am some fantastic husband who has everything figured out. I surely do not. Some of you know me well enough to know I clearly do not. One of you here knows me so well, you know I definitely do not. And if I ever thought I did, having a son has shown me I certainly do not. Simply put, I am not the standard, and fellow husbands, you are not the standard either. Not even our elders here are the standard, not even the godliest man you know, but rather only the God-man you know, Christ alone. And that is who this text is about. There is a gospel-saturated calling that Paul opens with that is for husbands to love our wives, but that is an implication of the reality that is the gospel. It is not an if-then, but a because-therefore. It is what certain men are called to who are in certain positions because of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing. It's a holy calling, but it is a mere shadow to a substance. And so we must therefore strive to know the light of the true and better husband. And then from there, creature husbands, you live in view of it. But also all of us, live in light of it as the epistle to the ephesians has made clear over and over and over again these last few years we've spent in it husbands love your wives why because the most incredible thing that you could ever have imagined happened and is happening Have you ever contemplated this? Christian, God loves you. Christ loves you. This statement should never cease to floor you. But we live in an age that frankly thinks too far, too much of men. And when we hear such sweet words, this does not come to us as jaw-dropping, earth-shattering, totally shocking news, but rather expectation. Who wouldn't love me? I love me. Of course, God must love me. Of course, the Almighty must bow to my will. No. You are less than a worm, mere dust. You are here today and you are struck down tomorrow. And yet, I cannot even recall the massive amount of times. I have heard an unbeliever say, God has wrath for sinners. Well, that is not a God I can believe in. The translation for that is, God doesn't bend the knee to me. Well, that's not someone I can approve of. I am God. And though we Christians have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, we carry with us grave clothes at a postier. Corpse wax from our once decaying self. We expect God to love us, not because of what Christ did and has done for us, but because we think far too much of ourselves. We deserve God's love because we are who we are. But what did the Holy Spirit declare to us about our state before Christ through the pen of Paul? Paul. Let's look back into Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Worthy? No. Worthless. Good for one thing, kindling to an unquenchable all-consuming fire, dead and dying vile scum of the earth, identified as children of wrath, sons of disobedience to the true monarch, following, rather, the doomed prince of the power of the air. This was every last single one of us, and it would still be so. If not, for one. If not, for the Christ having loved us. As Paul continues in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, he utters, he writes perhaps the most beautiful two words in Scripture, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with Christ. my capability to adequately hold out this fact before you to even the smallest degree is wanting. I can only sit with you and marvel and pray the Spirit works through my lacking vocabulary so all may know God, the Almighty, the Infinite One, He condescended in the second person of the Trinity and took on flesh out of love, for wretches such as us. You may stoop to the floor out of love for your child. And you may perhaps even do so for an animal you find to be to your liking. But tell me, family, who stoops out of love for a disease-infested maggot or some plague-ridden rat Not a soul of us, do we? We are far too lofty in comparison. We are too good for that. And yet, the distance between man and God is an exceedingly more significant gap than that of even the ravine between even the most disgusting of creatures and man. Paul, I believe, in writing this epistle, must have had the first part of Ezekiel 16 in mind. While it was penned indeed about ethnic Israel, it pointed towards something to come, the true Israel, the church. Go ahead and turn there to Ezekiel 16, and we'll begin in verse 4. It says, And as for your birth, on the day you were born, Your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with salt or with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out into an open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live! I said to you in your blood, live! I made you flourish like a plant of the field. It would have been exceedingly merciful for Christ merely to have come and to have lived among us, letting us see even for a moment the beauty of the Almighty, to have walked by us and to have let us catch even a glimpse, and for us then to have gone and and told our children about the most amazing thing that ever happened, our children also who were lying in their blood, about the extraordinary passing by of God in our midst in a particular time, in a particular place, but no more. Such would be extreme mercy. Such would be great grace. But Christ saw fit not to merely stoop. He would love the unlovely. The one that no one loved. The son of man would come for the dead and the dying. And he would love them into life by the giving up of his own. Does this not floor you? How can this be? Maggots, worthless fly larva, loved by no one, abhorred, Scripture says, lying in our blood in the dust to soon decay back into the dirt of the earth and the Almighty then taking on our nature and perishing for us. So that we may escape the grave we so deserved. As Paul said in verse 2 of this fifth chapter of Ephesians, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Are those not very beautiful words for a very bloody affair? There we stood. We were condemned before the ancients of days. We were valueless, slaves to sin, unable to ascend the hill of the Lord, for our hands were ripe with putrefaction. Death was in the fiber of our being. The grave was calling. Torment was waking. We needed a Savior. And there he stood, beloved son of the Father, joyfully submitting himself to God, coming not to be served, but rather to serve, ascending that hill with innocent hands to be pierced, being hung on a tree for, as a cursed man for cursed men, taking the full cup of God's wrath for us. And then, as Augustine said, he endured death as a lamb, and he devoured it as a lion. The offering was fragrant, for the offering was perfect. John Gill on this said, Being an unblemished sacrifice and voluntarily offered up, it was complete, full, and adequate to the demands of justice. By it, sin was put away, finished, made an end of, and His people perfected forever. We sing this so often when we are ushered into the heavenly places of our Lord's table every Sunday to commune with Christ, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away, as wounds which mar the Chosen One bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon His shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. But his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Such is love. But beloved of Christ, Even this is not entirely how he has loved the church. Not only did Christ redeem her, us, for the price of his life, he also then promised himself to her as a bridegroom promises himself to his bride. How can this be? There is a great multitude of creatures in this world, but none I would unite myself with, with such fierce devotion, as I have bound myself to my wife. Much less would I stoop to the most putrid of this world's creatures, take it up into my arms and declare, you, you and I will now be one. We will be united. So that what my destiny is, so too yours will be. Where I will go, you shall follow me. What you require, I shall give to you. For I will serve you, and I will delight in you, and I will love you forever. And yet, this is precisely, is it not, what Christ has done for us? He calls us his bride. We read that so often and are not moved even an iota in our hearts. We are so callous, which Paul warned us against earlier in Ephesians 4, uh, 17-24, but be sure there is no other relationship in our human experience as unique as the love a husband has for his bride. It is for her alone. He may love his several children. He may enjoy his many friends. But all these loves will never be the love he has for his bride alone. And so it is a picture that we see. It's visible words. The love between a Christian husband and a Christian wife is a picture Of rapture to come. This is covenant and nothing the bride does will rid herself of the bridegroom. She does not have to operate under the false notion that she must strive to earn his love, that she must do to become, she is his bride. And she didn't earn the right to be. Freely did he love her. Freely she may walk after him, obeying him out of love for the one who loved her first when she was unlovable by all. She is his bride, and so likewise she is called his body. For are not the husband and the wife one flesh? And this body, beloved, take heart, This body will be perfect. This body will be lacking nothing. Meaning, it will not be missing even one member. Christ will not turn a single one of those aside that are His, given to Him by His Father. You have assurance in Christ but do you fear that Christ will betray you? Do your grave clothes clinging to you swing to the other extreme of the pendulum where some of us think so much of ourselves, some of us then doubt the love God has for us? We wake every morning with dread and fear. Today we think, is the day Christ casts me out. Today is the day my husband betrays me. What husband makes his wife live that way? What husband makes a wife fearful in her own house that she will be cast out and abandoned? In our articulation of this, we say we doubt because we are just so wretched, but what this truly is, beloved, in actuality, is that we doubt Christ. We are so prone to disbelief. And while it is indeed proper posture to be shocked that Christ loves you, it is the sin of unbelief that causes you to deny that Christ loves you in any facet. And tomorrow he may hate you. Has he not loved you more than anyone in your entire life? Has he not been patient with your fears even now? washing away your old self. Scripture says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we have covered that now, but verse 26 goes on and says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Our salvation does not stop at merely being justified. We are being sanctified day by day by day. Paul, surely borrowing imagery again from Ezekiel 16, starting in verse 8, says, When I passed by you again, and I saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you, and I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you declares the Lord God and you became mine then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil and so now you are covered in blood you were covered in the stains of death. But Christ, who came down unto you and united himself to you, now continues to serve you by washing away the stains of blood by the sweet cleansing water of his word. When? How? Here and now in the preaching of the word on the Lord's day. Why do you think you were commanded to be here, told not to forsake the gathering of the brethren? Yes, we are here to worship, but it is not as though God is lacking without our praise. He's God. Everything is already His, beloved. Family, truly, we are here to be served as Christ, our prophet, washes us when the meager preacher stands before his peers and says, Thus saith the Lord. For when he does so, though he is full of folly, to be sure, he does not speak alone. We do not come here week after week after week for our elders or our teachers to wash us. We come here for Christ to do so. Calvin claims there are in fact two ministers in preaching. The external minister who holds forth the vocal word and it is received by the ears as well as the internal minister who is the Holy Spirit and who truly communicates the thing proclaimed, which is Christ. 1 Timothy four thirteen through 16 says, Until I come, Paul talking to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This written towards a young Christian preacher who would be preaching to saved men already. Yet, Paul says Timothy's preaching would save both himself and those who hear, who already believe. How can believers be saved when they hear the word preached? are they not already saved? Because Christ has not seen fit merely to save you from the penalty of sin. But He is now saving you from the power of sin in your life. Mortifying the sin in the flesh by the power of His Word. He is killing sin, so sin will not be killing you. This is a special time then where Christ here and now is with his bride in a holy place, washing her white as snow, bearing her burdens and assuring her despite her doubts and her fear and her sin, I loved you. I love you. I will always love you. Do you struggle with pride, seeing yourself worthy of Christ on your own merit? Christ will wash you. He will wash you of that as the gospel overwhelms you with awe for him. Do you struggle with unbelief, denying that Christ truly does love the faithful? Christ will wash you of that as his constant perfect love. And the gospel drowns out all fear. Do your actions not line up with the profession of your faith? Christ will wash you of that. As the gospel saturates your identity, making you eager both to will and to do for the glory of God. Not all at once. This does not happen at the moment we are justified, but over time all for this purpose, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This language here is beyond loving and intimate. No spot, no wrinkle. And then the apostle ups the ante, by saying, or any such thing. Nothing. Not even the smallest speck of filth. She will be without blemish. And in the word, she will be holy. Covered. Not in her earned her holiness, but in Christ's holiness. This is how Jesus has loved us. He has given us the greatest gift that could have ever been gifted and is the gift of himself. The holiness, the bride, will be clothed in like a wedding gown, will be none other than his own, for she is his and he is hers. Again, from Ezekiel 16, starting in verse 10, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen, and I covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your wrists, a chain on your neck. I put a ring in your nose, and earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus, you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk. And embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I have bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. I clothed you. I wrapped you. I adorned you. You were adorned. You ate. You grew. She becomes so beautiful. The world itself marvels at her because she is clothed and adorned by the Christ, with what is His. Ephesians says the church is presented in splendor. Ezekiel says her beauty is perfect and the splendor bestowed. The angels themselves marvel at this reality. And all of this, remember, all of this was unto that one who was dead in their trespasses and sins, the one lying on the side of the road in death, loved by no one, despised by all, worthy of torment, hideous. And yet, as the hymn goes, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. Into one hope she presses, with every grace endued. What love is this? This is true love. Selfless love. Different from anything else we see in the world. How can I say that? I'll give an example. Say you have a young man and a young woman. And the young man says he wants to marry this woman. Why? Most responses will be, because I can just talk to her so easily or because she is just so beautiful or even I just feel so good when I am around her. Oh brother, what happens if one day you find you can't talk to her so easily anymore? What happens when you find you can talk to someone else more easily? What happens if she is in a car accident And she comes out alive but disfigured, no longer beautiful. What happens if you find someone else more beautiful? What happens when the butterflies go away, when you're both up all night with a crying newborn? (laughs) What happens, maybe in a sentence, essentially when your selfish desires are not being fulfilled by her anymore? Is this how Christ has loved his bride no he gave up his very life for her and she was hideous and she did not desire him and he gained absolutely nothing from her but still he gave to her everything even himself now let me be clear this does not mean it's wrong to find your wife beautiful it is a wonderful thing It's not wrong to find her a comfort to talk to, for few things are more valuable in this life. It does not mean you will not have grand adventures through life together. But these coming and going things are not the foundation nor the call to marriage. The foundation is a desire to love her like Christ has loved the church, which means it is a desire to love her even if it means you must give up your very life for her. Many of us are taught by our culture to search for someone who is entirely compatible with you. And first of all, let me just say that woman does not exist. (laughs) But second of all, hear me, what if the woman God has in store for you is actually quite weak? In many of the areas, you desire a woman to be strong in. And what if that weakness is actually to your benefit? Because in her weakness, you can be taught to love like Christ has loved you. In my last sermon in Jude, I closed up on a story I had seen in the news about a husband who upon waking to a fire in his house, rushed outside only to turn around and realize his beloved wife was nowhere to be seen or found. And love them, he stormed the flames. He found his wife, who was asleep, woke her, and got her out of the house and into safety. Sadly, however, this man lost his life in that rescue operation. The smoke had entered in and corrupted his lungs. His eyes had shut and he had been taken from this world and from her. But the mission was accomplished. You see, he had loved his wife even to the point of giving his very life for her. Some of the great preachers throughout the ages of the church have often said we need not a new definition of Christianity, rather, we need a new demonstration. And what is our call to be a husband, brothers, if not a demonstration to a smaller degree of how Christ has loved the church? I know for myself last week the story, uh, I'm sorry, when I read this, the story moved me so greatly when I first read it because right away I could see from the lesser of this man, right away I looked at this, I read this, and I knew like that. Christ has loved me like that. He's loved my brothers like that. He's loved my sisters like that. I know not the faith of that man, but I know the faith of the men in this room. Christ has loved us and has called us to act as a shadow of Him in this facet, to love our wives as He has loved us. This is our first ministry. This is why an elder must have his house in order. For if a man cannot disciple his bride, how is he to be an elder to disciple the bride of Christ? I know last week my heart was pierced to its very core when Mike spoke of men who can be so patient with others during the day, laboring long hours to offer the gospel unto someone, only to then come home and put that love to the side when he comes home to greet his wife. Lacking any patience, not making use of the time in these evil days, it was a painful reminder of how far off I still am and how I need this word as much or more than all of you today if you notice Paul tells the wives to submit but he does not then tell the husband to lead rather to love he is of course leading he is the head yes but he is leading by loving and he is loving by serving even to the point Of death this means we are not to Lord over our wives for how has Christ dominated us what has Christ actually ever forced us to do what must his bride have done to have earned his love nothing not a thing And so we likewise do not force things upon our wives. We lead by serving, and we intentionally do so with the aim in sight of her being sanctified, being pointed to the true and the better, telling her, not to me, to Him. As Christ washes her in His Word, we in our homes then set the pace for worship, and we point her always day after day after day to the gospel that saves her. Christ delights in His bride, and so then we must therefore delight in ours. Christ respects His bride, and so we must therefore respect ours. Christ honors his bride we must then honor ours Christ seeks the contentment the satisfaction the pleasure of his bride and so we must seek the same for ours Christ protects his bride from injury and abuse and so we must protect ours Christ conceals the faults of his bride this is a big one. We must then conceal the faults of ours. Christ loves his bride sincerely and selflessly, and so we must love ours sincerely, selflessly. His love is alone for his bride. Our love then is alone for ours. His love is constant to his bride. Our love, then, is constant unto ours. Christ loves His bride as His own body, and so we should love ours as our own body. The Father chose this bride for His Son, and likewise He has ordained who will be our bride. We will fail this, no doubt. But we are called to strive for it by the power of the Spirit as heralds for the bridegroom. For our wives' sake, so that she may know all the more of Christ, and for our sake too, so that we may be conformed more to Christ. When we fail, we are to remember We are still loved we must repent then to our wives and to our God and continue the striving as we usher our wives towards eternity to a truer love than we could ever hope to display for see all of this all of it is with eschatological purpose every millisecond of our lives is moving towards something beyond even the most glorious and magnificent of descriptions. The and scripture says here in Ephesians 5 so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. I want you to think about this picture here. Think of every day now. Christ presents the bride to the Father in intercession when He intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit also is presenting sinners unto Christ when they are saved. But there is a day longed for that is coming, a glorious day where Christ will present the church this bride made beautiful, Spotless, clothed in righteousness, he will present her unto none other than himself for his delight. He delights in you. He will delight in you. Today we are engaged. Tomorrow is the wedding day where the church will be gathered to him made perfect in His holiness, righteousness, and number, complete, and we will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will slide our knees under the table. We will sit beside Him, and Christ will declare to us, as He did at the last supper, take and eat. Reversing that cursed phrase of the serpent that brought death and instead nourishing us with salvation. What an overwhelming price it was to redeem that those words, take, eat, live. And yet he paid it. And one might be inclined to think of all of this and see all of this and think of that supper and say, there, there, finally, at the marriage supper, when I am finally clean. When this death is finally cast off from me, when my sin has been washed from me, there, there I may be too able to do something. Even the smallest of things may I do to serve my Lord. Maybe I can serve the food of the feast unto Him. Maybe I can finally do something. No. Luke twelve thirty-seven says, when Christ speaks of this day, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and he will serve them. You mean Christ will serve us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. How can this be? After all of this, after condescending, after living in my place, dying in my place, picking me up from my death, washing me of my filth, dressing me in His righteousness, Still, he serves me. As if to say, Beloved, did you ever think you wouldn't need your Savior to serve you? Did you ever think you wouldn't need your Savior to love you? Was it not for this joy That Christ endured the cross. We will sit together. From every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, we will sit as one. While our Lord girds himself to serve us, and in awe forever, we will rejoice and praise the name of the worthy, loving Savior, just as in a moment we will sing. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast, and we will weep no more. This is how Christ has loved us. And this is how Christ is loving us. And this is how Christ will love us. Husbands, therefore, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Beloved, therefore, you too love one another as Christ has loved you. John fifteen twelve to 13 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Let's pray. Almighty Father, power of the Spirit and in the name of the one we may call friend we come to you before your throne Lord may we know the gospel if we know nothing else may we know the gospel that your Son came. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. And he's united us unto himself. Stamp eternity on our eyeballs, Father. May we wake every day with that glorious day in sight. Where we will sit with our beloved we yearn for. I pray, Father, this word penetrates our hearts and our minds. And in specifics, I pray that us husbands live in light of this. Though we fail every day. May we remember in our failings how you have loved us, how Christ has loved us and then may we love our wives and love our children. And for all of us, may we love one another. Thank you for giving us this time, Father, and for now inviting us unto our bridegroom's table to be served with an eye looking towards that day when he will serve us pray these things in his matchless name. Amen.